You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. And I apologize if I sound slightly froggy. I'm at the tail end of a cold or, or allergies or something. I don't know. The doctor gave me a shot. Anyway, with me this morning is uh, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How goes it there, Michael? Pretty well, David. You know, um, I, when we did our podcast recommendation episode in May, I, I mentioned Firewall and Iceberg, which is a show f- about television. What I didn't mention then is that one of their hosts, Dan Feinberg, sounds strikingly like you. And when you're sick, you sound almost exactly like him. <laughs> also, I'll be your host, Dan Feinberg. If only mm-hmm. we could parlay this into some sort of Feinberg impersonation career. <laughs> I could be your manager. It'd be excellent. Right. Huh. And I could open up for you as Elvis. (laughs) Sweet deal. Uh, The one who wants to open up as Elvis is uh, Nathan Gilmore. That hunk of hunk of burning love. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's just a hound dog crying all the time. Uh, Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? I am doing pretty well, David. You know, I can't let this podcast go on any further without mentioning that when I had a band in college, uh, we actually opened for an Elvis impersonator. It was the high point of my music career. <laughs> awesome. That's pretty great. Yeah. We, we almost opened for Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the way I should frame it instead of we opened for a Elvis impersonator in North Georgia. <laughs> we came this close to opening for Elvis. <laughs> nice. Well, listeners, uh, as we... Uh, I've explained on a couple of episodes, but just in case uh, this is your first, um, back in the olden days of yore, uh, we would read letters and blog feedback and all the rest of that uh, on the on the episode before we got into our topic. But uh, we have been inundated with feedback. Now, it's a good kind of inundation, but it got to the point where it was just taking too long to read letters to get to the topic and some people got bored and anyway we've started doing special episodes on feedback so no letters this week if you've written us we appreciate it and we will get to that but uh it may a wee bit be a wee bit, wee bit before we do so easy for you to say well apparently it wasn't <laughs> at any rate this is episode 142 of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and we're picking up a thread that was actually laid down in our feedback episode. A couple of uh, listeners wrote us emails, uh, essentially asking us to put the C in the CHP. So today we're talking about the degree to which uh, Christianity and our own Christian, uh, Christian walk, Christian convictions, shape our approach to this Christian Humanist podcast project. So uh, I'm going to start by referring to one of those emails, guys. Um, uh, 
Chinbule's shorthand and jocular description of our, <laughs> I guess, creedal or sectarian commitments. And I quote, After 138 episodes, we've seen Gilmore's semi-Pelagian post-liberal Anabaptist Arminianism, <laughs> Farmer's quirky existentialist mainline feminist, Reformed in some sense Presbyterianism, and Grubb's Orthodox Biblical and Reformed Presbyterianism, and listeners, his his tongue is firmly in his cheek, mostly probably. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Still, um, this is a listener description of us, so now uh, we'll take a few minutes and describe ourselves. Um, I'd like each of us to take a wee bit and trace our story as Christians and touch on what you find most important to your own self-understanding as a Christian, your upbringing, your conversion, changes of commit conviction or commitment or whatever belongs in your story. But, you know, the short version. We'll start with you, Nathan. Well, I came up in a movement within the church that wasn't especially theological as I first encountered it, and that's the Stone Campbell uh, Christian Churches, Churches of Christ movement, uh, the Restoration Movement, sometimes we call ourselves. Uh, you know, that was the church where my mom tried to get me to go to Sunday school as a kid with mixed degrees of success. Uh, that's the church where I had my, what I would call my conversion experience as a teenager. Uh, and, you know, ultimately that's, you know, where I went to college, where I went to seminary and where I've always attended some version of a Stone Campbell church. Now that's important because, you know, in 21st century America, as our listeners well know, uh, denominational loyalty and that's that's kind of a funny term because our movement insists that we're not a denomination uh tends to be fluid uh people might be a baptist growing up and then become episcopalian and then later on become eastern orthodox whatever um in my case i've been all over the place intellectually uh but i've remained within the same ecclesial polity roughly speaking uh, so, I mean, for that reason, you know, I, I guess, you know, once again, I find myself unable to act normal. Uh, <laughs> now, with that said, you know, as far as, you know, changes that have occurred in my faith, you know, when I was uh, a teenage convert, I was pretty well convinced that what I should be is, you know, a good GOP, uh, evangelical, Rush Limbaugh listening sort of dude that was always in a little bit of tension with what I would call my family's politics on one hand and then also with the sort of quasi-artsy crowd that I preferred to hang out with, Dungeons & Dragons types, if you will. Um, and, you know, as I entered into Milligan College in Johnson City, Tennessee back in 1995 and as I went on from there into seminary, you know, I definitely developed a different sort of identity, although I retained that loyalty to the restoration movement. And like I said, my history of church attendance is a string of some sort of Christian church. Uh, so, I mean, you know, as far as that story goes, um, I sort of envision my own role within that as whatever the equivalent of a, you know, movement theologian would be for a movement that won't call itself a denomination. Michael, how about your story? As I, I think I've mentioned on the show, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and I, I, you know, very, very serious about it, especially in my my teenage years. And I, I ended up going to a Christian and Missionary Alliance school 
a college, um, mostly because my youth pastor had gone there and I wanted to be a youth pastor, which is very funny to think about now. <laughs> um, while I was there, I got kind of fed up with low church Protestantism. It, it, it started to seem, it's such a cliche to say it and I don't want to offend anybody because I don't really think this anymore, but at the time it started seeming kind of shallow to me. So I, I became interested in, there was a Eastern Orthodox church that met in town and I had some friends who went there. And so I became interested in orthodoxy um, to the point where I was, a, I was a catechumen for a while, which is the step before conversion. But I ended up not converting to orthodoxy um, for a variety of reasons that I suppose we could talk about, but I don't want to. <laughs> um, and, and after that, I, I began to drift a little bit. I, I had a very hard time in, in graduate school. I went through a real crisis of faith. And uh, I, I decided for a while that I was going to be non-religious. And I just didn't have the temperament for it, um, which you can either see, depending on your own thoughts on faith, you can either see that as me needing a crutch, me being kind of intellectually soft, or you can see it as a form of grace that kind of bound me to the faith. And I guess I choose to interpret it the second way. I, I think a lot about the verse in John 6 where Jesus had said some unpleasant saying as he was fond of doing. And everybody left but the, <laughs> but, but the, uh, the apostles. And uh, Jesus said, aren't you going to leave me too? And Peter said, Lord, where would we go? And and mm -hmm. that is that is kind of how I feel. Lord, where would I go? What what else is there for me? Mm -hmm. Um. And so uh, after that, uh, I I converted to Presbyterianism, which is a uh, a denomination I'd always been interested in, and uh, I actually converted to PCUSA, which is the mainline denomination, as Chinbule mentioned. Although the church we're involved with now here in uh, Minnesota is actually has actually split from the PCUSA over some of their recent uh, decisions. And so I, I suppose now I'm part of this organization called ECO, which is yet another Presbyterian splinter group, um, <laughs> which I, as far as I can tell is, is the PCUSA with a stronger theological focus uh, and, and a little bit more conservative politically. So still to the left of the PCA and, and some of the other, uh, Presbyterian groups, but to the right, I suppose, if you want to use that simple divide of the PCUSA. Mm -hmm. So that is that is my story. I don't know how interesting it is, but that's it. I, I'm sorry. I'm very, for whatever reason, I've always been very uncomfortable giving testimonies and things like that. I, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about a variety of things, but for whatever reason, this makes me uncomfortable. Hmm. So uh, if you guys would like to psychoanalyze me, I welcome it. <laughs> David, well, how about one, you? One, oh, one go, go thing, ahead. Michael, real quick. Uh, and I'm curious about this because it used to be something that really bugged me, but I think I've just mellowed with age. But you use the verb to convert to talk about a move from Southern Baptist to Eastern Orthodox. And that that verb always maybe it's because, you know, my own movement, you know, sort of positions itself as a Christian unity movement. But why is it that you think of that as a conversion rather than a a lateral shift or some other metaphor? I think it, it's it's not a full conversion. You're right. They're, they're, I would call them branches of the same religion. I think Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism are Christianity, obviously. And in fact, I think mm -hmm. it's the Protestants who probably have to defend ourselves to, to be Christians because the, the Catholics and the Orthodox have been Christians way longer than we have, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't mean it that way. 
Um, what we really need is a verb between convert and change my preference. Mm-hmm. It, because I, I do think the the mode of living called for by Eastern Orthodoxy, which is the one I know, I don't know Catholicism as well, but I suspect it's true of that too. To be a serious Catholic requires a different mode of thought than being a serious Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't I don't mean it in the sense of a different religion, but a different outlook, a different orientation, a different that W word Nathan doesn't like and that I don't like that much. <laughs> All right, sorry to cut you off there, David. What's your story? No worries. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a good point to to raise right now, uh, particularly in the in this discussion, because you know how we think about. You know, well, I mean, your your story did not include doesn't include these shifts, Nathan. But how I think about um, my drifting from one particular flavor to another, or one particular. Um, conviction to another um, is it is it like I just suddenly decided I don't like chocolate ice cream and now I want pistachio all the time or is it like changing team loyalties or you know I, I've I've often struggled with how how to talk about that so I guess I'll I guess I'll try to it's like it's mm-hmm. like moving from Barclayan idealism to Kantian idealism you know you're still an <laughs> idealist okay but it, so so it's it's more like people within the same broad, I guess, broad political faction arguing the boots on the ground practical application of. You're moving states, but not, not citizenship. Fair enough. This might be a good episode. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my testimony. Um, very briefly. Uh, also, uh, was born into um, a Southern Baptist family. Though uh, my dad was raised uh, Stone Campbell, uh, hmm. Nathan, and uh, a, a big part of my childhood was going to my grandmother's church and uh, singing a cappella and, uh, and not taking communion because my dad told me that they would be offended if I did because I didn't go to their church. So I wasn't really sure about that. It was always a little anxious going there to my grandmother's church, though I loved the music. <laughs> um, when I was a young teenager, we, uh, switched from a Southern Baptist church to a non-denominational, non-denominational Bible church, which wasn't really that different in terms of belief or polity than the Southern Baptist church we'd left. Um, there were some ecclesiological differences. It was, uh, it was elder ruled, um, instead of single elder, um, but it was a church that really emphasized um, teaching, uh, especially biblical and doctrinal teaching as part of its mission, which the church I grew up in had not. And that's the point at which I really sort of embraced being a theology nerd um, in the idiom that my church um, expressed that. Um, now it was also around this time, you know, you know, burgeoning adolescence, um, and even even before that, but especially then, that I realized that this whole me being a new creature in Christ thing wasn't working out as well as I'd like, um, and it, I had a lot of problems, um, you know, kind of as an older child and then going into adolescence because. 
I didn't really understand grace. I didn't really understand faith. And I definitely didn't understand the notion of progressive sanctification. I knew that whole, if you were in Christ, you're a new creature thing. But I kept not being new and awesome. And so for me, that meant, well, I guess I didn't really believe hard enough and so didn't get the grace because uh, that was kind of how I, how that mechanism explained itself in my mind. I believe really, really, really hard and then God gives me grace and then I become new, but I mm -hmm. kept not being new. Um, but uh, at some point in there, some things clicked uh, that grace is really gratuitous <laughs> um, and that faith is not a some kind of uh, matrix-style bend-the-spoon-with-your-mind kind of mental activity, but um, more of a clinging and that the clinging is, uh, you know, only to, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Um, that that faith is not something that you do at the beginning, get new, and then just, and then just sort of keep on being awesome on your own uh, momentum. But uh, that the the clinging to the cross, needing grace, uh, was something that I would need every every single day, and that sanctification was something that I would be seeing in increments, <laughs> sometimes very 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 small increments. Um, I went to Bible college, uh, a very, uh, very conservative Bible college. Um, they were proud to call themselves fundamentalist. Um, and I guess, uh, I, I still have something of that in me as well. Um, I will, I will say why, yes, why, yes. I think there are fundamental fundamentals to the faith to which if you, you know, from which if you depart, you cease to be a Christian. Um, but I did have some shifts in theology. I became uh, less uh, less a kind of undeveloped Arminian and more influenced by Reformed thinking. Um, that came under the influence of uh, some professors I had at college uh, who incidentally would not actually say that they were Calvinists. Um, it's just in the theology classes when they were presenting the particular positions um, their presentation of uh, reform takes on particular doctrines um, was to me more persuasive than the other than the other ones that they presented. So whether that was them showing their cards and their sympathies or or what, I I, I actually still don't know. Um, and I uh, that that track of uh, kind of reformed um, thinking stuck with me such that when, after I finished college and graduate school uh, and was no longer sort of near my hometown to where I could keep going to my family's uh, church, um, I went to a PCA church in Athens, Georgia, uh, which I really appreciated the very first Sunday I was there, the pastor in the same sentence uh, quoted C.S. Lewis and Augustine and... Um, you know, a few other guys that I was like, hey, intellectual hat tips, I dig this. <laughs> so um, I, I stuck there. And uh, I grew, I grew a lot. But in some of the ways that I grew um, made me realize that I've, I, I, I wasn't 
completely Presbyterian whole hog, there were still some things that rankled. So um, now we attend, my wife and I uh, in Kansas, we attend soteriologically for, reformed, but um, ecclesiologically more Baptistic uh, church, um, whatever you want to call that. Um, so, you know, my convictions have shifted over the years, but also one of the things that's happened is that I've got in conversation over the years with more Christians of, uh, different confessional stripes, whether they're, they're living Christians like you guys (laughs) or, um, Christians who have gone on, uh, so, so that, uh, I try to, I try to read uh, medieval Catholics and Puritans and, you know, ancient Greek fathers. And, you know, I, I try to read theologians of, of, of different confessions and see, you know, how far, how far can I go with you and keep saying amen? Um, I feel like that's been a good, a good discipline for me and to kind of help keep me from getting too parochial, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that's that's me, and I don't think we've ended up being exactly like Chinbule said. <laughs> well, uh, we each have a different story to tell too, um, and it has to do with the life of the mind. Um, so, how how was each of us led to the life of the mind? When and how did we first begin to think of ourselves in those terms? Um, important points that figure in our personal journeys. And when did you first, uh, we'll start with you, Michael, when did you first connect this intellectual side of your life with the Christian side, and what led you to make the connection? Well, it, it started in a profoundly unintellectual way uh, through rock music. I, I have talked on the show before about Daniel Amos, the band, Terry Taylor, the songwriter, he uh, he made references to people like T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and Cheslov Miwash, Annie Dillard, and, and especially this guy Frederick Beekner in his songs. And I loved his songs, and so I began to read the books that he talked about. The help of a website that I'm not sure exists anymore that annotates them and tells you where they come from. Mm. And um, from reading... Elliot and Miwash and whoever else in, in high school, I decided, well, this is something, this is something that's worth doing, you know? And, and as I went through college, I, I became more and more interested and more positioned myself more and more as an intellectual. And, and through that positioning, I suppose, became more and more of an intellectual to the degree mm-hmm. I am at all. And there's that Southern Baptist talking. Because deep, deep at the core, you don't change, right? Um, but but uh, so yeah, it, it actually did not come about in a, in a terribly sophisticated way. Uh, and uh, Frederick Beekner, I should say, was if if Terry Taylor was my first stepping stone, Frederick Beekner was my next. I I read almost everything he wrote when I was in high school, at least his nonfiction. And uh, he, he also pointed me in a lot of directions uh, in terms of reading next people. And I know we'll get to this in a few minutes, but he, he also pointed me toward existentialism. 
Mm-hmm. So I would say those those were my two te- stepping stones, the band Daniel Amos and uh, Frederick Buechner, neither one of whom, I mean, is intellectual. They're not academics, I should say. Frederick Buechner is a popular level theologian and novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all come, I, I suspect, to the life of the mind through intermediary steps. We get to the ocean through the marshes. And mm-hmm. thank God for the marshes. <laughs> yeah. Though sometimes the marshes are not, as we as we grow up, quite as pleasant as we remember them being. Yeah, and, and that, that happens. I, I go, Going back and picking up Beekner's novels, for example, things I didn't read when I was in the formative stages of my intellectual development, I don't like them. Um, I like the ones I read when I was 17, but I, I don't find myself liking his other fiction. And I don't know if that's because I just happened to read all the good ones or if because they, they have such a hold on me because they, they reached me at such a stage in my development. And now I can't swim in those waters anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Nathan? Well, uh, as far as how I got here, a uh, couple things immediately come to mind. First of all, I never thought of myself as a literature person in high school. It was something that I did well in, but I also did well in science and math and other classes too. I just thought I was good at school more generally. Uh-huh. Um, as far as you know, those early seeds of what I do now, first of all, like I said before, I tended to hang out in high school with artsy types, literary types, budding poets, so on and so forth people who knew when they were 15 that they wanted to be English majors. Uh, I was not that sort, although I did play an awful lot of Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games. Uh, so, I mean, I, I now I realize I was telling stories for fun, uh, mm-hmm. which probably should have you know, alerted me that something was coming down the pike. <laughs> um, I actually started college as a computer science major. I uh, got A's in my programming classes, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I was taking... Uh, Milligan's interdisciplinary uh, humanities classes uh, and suddenly started to realize that I really, really enjoy uh, Plato and Dante and, you know, all of these things that, you know, I was told were the province of English majors. Uh, So I said, all right, perhaps I should become one of those and I'll become a high school English teacher. Well, then a little bit later on, a a professor, actually a professor of uh, church history and theology, not even an English professor, heard me read a paper on Beowulf, no less, uh, at an undergraduate awesome. research conference and said, you know, you really have a desire for this stuff. I can tell you're really enjoying yourself. And, you know, I've heard your paper. You've got some ability. Have you thought about graduate school? And that's kind of where I started heading that direction. As far as why I, you know, became the dabbler that I am, uh, I, I certainly have, you know, Milligan's Humanities program to credit for that. Uh, you know, in that program, you never get to think of history as something that occurs apart from philosophy. Philosophy is something that is anything but integrally related with literature. Literature is something that goes on without the help of music, so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, theology pervades all of it. So this is the reason that when I was in seminary writing my Old Testament thesis – Half of it was about William Blake. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation on British literature, uh, a good hunk of it was on Plato, Boethius, you know, William of Ockham, and mm-hmm. Martin Luther. Uh, you know, it, it's just always been part of my life of the mind that 
you know, what we're dealing with is a series of networks and connections. And it's always good to think about how we can name the parts of that network. But those names, in my mind, always have to be tentative names. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you got, David? Um, I was, I, I can't remember not being a nerd. <laughs> um, and, and especially a bookish one. Um, I mean, I read my first, um, the first book I remember reading by myself, um, was when I was seven. It was a Bob Z twin mystery, you know, I loved the Bob Z twins. Oh, thank God, (laughs) brother. Um, yeah, uh, the Bob Z twins at Pilgrim Rock, right? Um, which has, a bit of American history in it, and there were a lot of trains involved, and uh, kind of a Scooby-Doo ghost haunting, and it was—I uh, was seven, and it was—it was so awesome. <laughs> um, and that was the first book I ever read when I was not in the company of another person reading aloud, so that they were correcting my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And that was when I—that re- was the point at which I discovered one could read silently for oneself, for enjoyment alone. Your Augustine moment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. I didn't realize that that was an Augustine moment until later, but that that was the moment at which I was was hooked. So I I was a reader ever since then. Um, Also pretty early on, uh, I guess because I was a reader, uh, I just, I, I didn't know that there were books that were supposed to be read for fun and books that weren't. And we had a set of encyclopedias, and they had interesting pictures in them. So I would read our encyclopedias. Nobody told me that was supposed to be study, that it was supposed to be hard, and that kids weren't supposed to like it. Um, so I I liked it. And it got to the point where I loved the way that adults reacted when I knew something, when mm-hmm. I knew a fact. And... So, you know, childish, you know, childish ego stroking (laughs) (laughs) essentially confirmed my nerdery. Um, The third thing was the point at which I discovered that sometimes the encyclopedias said different things than my parents said or that my church said. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was probably nine or ten when I discovered that and had to, uh, and, and I started realizing that not everybody said the same thing. Not all the books said the same thing. And how did, how was I to tell the difference and how was I to say or know which one was, uh, which one was right. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was particularly, you know, where did human beings come from? Uh, that kind of thing. So, so, you know, I was 10 years old reading like, like creation science stuff from the seventies, you know, horribly out of date, even when I was reading it. (laughs) And, and now a lot of it just, you know, I'm like, yeah, I don't know how well that holds, but for nine year old me, it was an initiation into the idea that there are arguments and evidence and, so that it wasn't just about knowing stuff, it was also about being right. 
and that that got me set on you know so 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 from the very beginning um that intellectual side of my life was steered by christianity large largely because of the whole um the Bible says different things about where humans came from than what I was reading in my encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was always, there was always a, a Christian slant in that. Um, and later on I discovered, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and they helped me to kind of, you know, recognize that my love of fiction books was also something that I could do Christianly. Um, not just the nonfiction, the science and the history and whatnot, but, uh, it all happened pretty early on and mostly, mostly I've continued in the same trajectory, but hopefully as decades passed, got humbler. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, let's transition from that. Um, from our stories to uh, talking about the issues. Uh, In our feedback episode, we interacted with a request from some listeners to be explicitly biblical. And, uh, you know, I believe we communicated in that episode that we took that request seriously, not entirely clear on on how that's going to shape up in in every single topic, but um, we want to be clear that being biblical is something that we're concerned with. Um, so we want to continue to take that request seriously. Mm-hmm. So Nathan, um, how would you go about making a biblical case or setting a biblical agenda, however you want to say that, for the sure. Christian humanist endeavor? Yeah, I mean, a couple things. Uh, and this honestly is one of the things that makes this project that we've been doing for five years so interesting is that the adjective biblical is always itself contested territory. Uh, so for instance, you know, when I hear, you know, that we need to, to take a biblical take on it, uh, my mind is automatically going to what I see as the inherent plurality in the messages of the Bible. And, you know, uh, if you say we want to be biblical, my first thought is, well, good, you know, we're going to have this ongoing dispute about what the core of faithfulness to God might be. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have room in there, not only for, uh, you know, Philippians and Romans, but also for the Apocalypse and Ecclesiastes and uh, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, so for that reason, uh, someone who is a lot more committed to a notion that the biblical message is unitary uh, is going to find my position very alien and perhaps even wrongheaded. Uh, so for that reason, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I don't see like we said in that feedback episode, a strong disconnect between a strongly dialogical approach to things and then a strongly biblical approach to things. I will say that mm-hmm. a lot of times, just because I teach so many biblical texts, uh, I sort of internalize what I see as the large narratives and the large dynamics of biblical revelation uh, without mm-hmm. necessarily quoting chapter and verse as often as some of my friends do. Now, whether mm-hmm. that is a shortcoming or whether it is, you know, simply a difference that doesn't have that much moral weight, uh, that's not for me to decide. That's to be disputed, um, going back to my original point. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, I'm going to keep trying to do 
is to listen to the way that David Grubbs is biblical in ways that I'm not biblical uh, and to keep trying to make those judgments. All right. You know, would it be better to be more Grubbs biblical or, you know, mm-hmm. should that be a sign to me that, you know, I need to articulate more clearly what it means to be Gilmore biblical. And then at the same time, you know, when I hear farmer being farmer biblical, uh, you know, in what ways can I learn from that and sharpen the way that I am biblical? Uh, so that, that might strike you as a non answer, but as I said uh-huh. at the outset, that is part of what I see as the content of biblical revelation is that those books don't go away. It's not as if we get the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, and therefore, as soon as we get that, the book of Job disappears. No, they're both there. They're both contending. Mm-hmm. They're both voices that are still part of what we hear from the Bible. So uh, what do you think, Michael? Am I, am I just being a uh, post-liberal there? Well, you are being a post-liberal, but you're not just being a post-liberal. <laughs> I, I think of your buddy Brian McLaren. He has that book, A Generous Orthodoxy. And I, I think I have my disagreements with McLaren, but I think that's a good term, a, a generous orthodoxy. There is, I, I think we can all agree with what something David said earlier. There are fundamentals that, that if you if you scratch them out, you're not Christian in any meaningful sense. Um, I think those are fewer in number than people sometimes think they are. And, you know, they're the big ones. God exists. The Trinity exists. Christ died, was crucified, rose again. Um, Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. I've said it before. The Apostles' Creed, I think. Is Apostles' prob- creed stuff. Yeah, I, I think that that is, the, that is the baseline. From there, I think you can be biblical and kind of branch out. And, and, and the tension between people is important. Um, and I, I, I actually would say that denominations are important in that sense. I, I think it's, I think it's our traditions, as your non-denomination denomination <laughs> would have it. Um, just getting back to the early days of the show, you yelled at me for calling it a denomination. I, I still, I still hold it in my heart till this very day. I, I don't think I yelled, but um, <laughs> our, our listeners can can tell us. I don't even remember what episode it was. Anyway, um, I, I, I think you're, I think you're right that as the as the Bible contains multitudes, Christianity is allowed to contain multitudes, and and that doesn't mean it contains everything. Right. Yeah. The, 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 this is not an all or nothing proposition. It's a several proposition. Mm-hmm. Right. Finite, but plural. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I was going to be biblical in, uh, I, I don't know, the, the, the ways that at least one of our letter writers pointed at, um, you know, I, w- I would I would point to texts that, you know, talk about, you know, loving loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And, and what does it mean to love God with my mind? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I see that as an, as, um, an, an important thing. I can't, I can't, uh, put the intellectual side of my life into a silo and pretend that, uh, pretend that my faith has nothing to do with it, has no, um, uh, no dominion uh, in that area. Uh, I would point to texts, um, uh, particularly uh, Paul, uh, Romans, talking about uh, uh, the renewal of your mind, not being conformed to the world, but being renewed 
uh, in your mind, in, in, in the mind. And, and what does that mean? Because there is, uh, and I think uh, you'll probably be getting at some of this, Nathan, uh, but there is, uh, there are, there, there are intellectual traps. There are intellectual dangers that come along with, um, the world, the flesh and the devil mm-hmm. and, and renew, renewing our mind in the image of our Lord is, uh, is an important thing. And, and part of what's in my mind, part of what's important in my mind is, is books, is literature, is philosophy, is all of these other things. And so that part of my mind has to get renewed too. Um, you know, I must take my Lord with me into those endeavors. I can't, I can't leave him behind. Um, you know, so the, those are, you know, if I had to cite texts, those are the kinds of texts that I would cite. Of course, I would also cite the end of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> to the writing of books, there is no end, and much learning is wearisome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've also got that voice going on in the canon as well. Um, and that one's always kind of there to warn me against the pretensions of my own project. So, Yeah. Sufficiently biblical, guys? I'm satisfied. <laughs> All right. Sweet deal. Uh, we're going to get to uh, a couple of labels. Um, returning to Chimbalay's characterization of it, of us, uh, there were a couple of labels that I'd like to interact with a bit more because uh, they're not uh, so much autobiographical as they are philosophical and theological. Um, Michael, you have uh, described yourself as an existentialist. And you're fine with that. Yep. Uh, so briefly, what's an existentialist? Assume people don't know. And how does that philosophical approach shape your version of Christian humanism? Um, so a caveat. I taught a class, a full class on existentialism two years ago. And uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the semester, I asked my students what existentialism was, and none of them could tell me. <laughs> and, and I think Fantastic. that's – All these big movements, you know, uh, like the Bible, contain multitudes. And so mm-hmm. uh, the, the standard definition comes from Sartre's existentialism as a humanism. He says – Existence precedes essence. That's what all the existentialists agree on. I don't think they all actually do agree on it, but I think that's a pretty good starting point. Existence precedes essence means that unlike, for example, a paper cutter, which is, which is his example, a paper cutter <laughs> is built for one purpose, to cut paper. It, it, it is built with that in mind, and uh, when it cuts paper, it is fulfilling its purpose. When it's doing anything else, it's not fulfilling its purpose. Thus, the essence of a paper cutter is to cut paper. For human beings, um, existence precedes essence, meaning you don't have some built-in purpose that you are meant to fulfill. Uh, instead, you make your purpose as you go along. Another way of saying this is that meaning does not exist in the structure of the universe. Meaning exists when human beings interact with the universe. Now, I think Christian existentialism has to modify that a little bit. Uh, and, and it does. Uh Actually, Sartre modifies it because Christian existentialism mostly comes first. So if you read Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death, what he talks about instead of our not having an essence until we create it is that there is an essence to which we are meant to live up, but it is unknown to us. It it kind of exists off in God's world. Um, which is cut off from our own in ways that make it so. I think his famous quote is, "Life 
can only be understood in, uh, backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think that is that is the sense in which I'm an existentialist. I don't think there is some readily accessible meaning to life that we can just live our lives by. Instead, we have to fight for it. And um, frankly, we come up with a lot of things that are useful for a time and then that have to be discarded in terms of how meaning works. And so I think um, – I think essentially the I don't want to say the universe is without meaning because it it does have a meaning. God created it for a reason. However, mm-hmm. that meaning is utterly unknown to us, other than other than the the few glimmers that have been revealed in Scripture. Um, the the meaning is something that we're going to have to fight for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, yeah, go ahead. And even then, it's something that necessitates faith. Right. Yeah. So again, the the world is not something that can be rationally understood beyond a certain point that, that on a, on a certain, at a certain level, the world is absurd and, and there's a variety of ways to deal with that. You can slip into nihilism or you can do what Camus says, which is even though the world is absurd, you can kind of stoically fight your way through it. Or you can trust that though the world is absurd, you know, at its deepest level, there's a, there's a, order to it that we can't see. Mm. And and so that is the sense in which I'm existentialist. You will, uh, Nathan has already evoked the books of uh, Job and Ecclesiastes. I think those are the first existentialist texts in, 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 a, in a real way, because those books are both about trying to make sense of a world that we're told by our religion has meaning, and yet when we look at it, there's no order to it whatsoever, no moral order. Right. Mm -hmm. Terrible things happen to people who don't at all deserve it. And and you work your whole life to increase your wisdom and then you die and you're a rotting corpse on the ground because there's no heaven in Ecclesiastes that I can see. Um, Well, the question is asked, but the answer that's given is who knows which way the spirit goes. Yeah. Who's to to say? So so existentialism (laughs) existentialism then becomes this species of wisdom literature. It it, it is. And and wisdom literature, as I understand it, is not about providing answers. It's about asking questions that you can't answer. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, Proverbs is about providing answers, but the problem problem with Proverbs is answers, though. I mean, I think Chinbule actually (laughs) brought this up in his emails. They contradict one another. Mm -hmm. So so Proverbs Proverbs is is kind of the opposite of Ecclesiastes, and it gives you nothing but answers. But the answers are hardly definitive. You've got to figure out you got to figure out how they work and which apply. And and Mm -hmm. they're, they're always. Uh, I, I like to say that proverbs are true statements about focused realities, but our lives are never just one focused reality happening at the, at a moment. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that that is that is very good. I, I, right. I agree with that. And and that's why Proverbs twenty six remains my favorite chapter in that book because in verses four and five. You have two proverbs that blatantly contradict each other, mm-hmm. and then two verses down the line, you get a saying that uh, a proverb in the mouth of a fool is utterly useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which you know, I always bring that one up to my students, and I say, "Okay, how do you know whether or not it's a fool reciting that to you? And if a <laughs> fool does say it, does it therefore make that part of the Bible, in fact, useless?" <laughs> because if it does, you just called the Bible useless. But if it doesn't, then you called the Bible a lie. 
And, and that's not the only place in Proverbs where it immediately contradicts itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just the most fun. And, and so, yeah, I mean, Proverbs, <laughs> Proverbs might be even more confusing than Ecclesiastes and Job in its way. Mm-hmm. Because Ecclesiastes and Job don't pretend there's an answer, or at least an answer yeah. for us. So, well, so maybe maybe one way of thinking about this is that existentialism suggests finitude on the part of the human being, which is funny because it's so connected with ultimate freedom. But ultimate freedom doesn't mean you can do absolutely anything. It just mm-hmm. it just means there's nothing holding you back from doing the things you can do. There's nothing that stops me metaphysically from walking into the next room and killing somebody. Right, right. It's just that, I, that if I do that, I gotta I, I have to live with the sort of person I have become by doing that. Right, and I mean to to use uh, Heidegger's terminology. I mean you're always thrown onto a world or project projected onto a world, uh, but then the stand that you take onto that world onto which you are projected is always your own responsibility. Yeah, and and, and I, I agree with that utterly. I mean, we, obviously we don't choose the world. We, we don't choose, in some sense, we don't choose who we are. Right, you're you're born with certain limitations. Um. Probably not as many as you imagine. Sartre goes into this long jag where he's very upset that people think existentialism is a pessimistic philosophy, which it's only pessimistic if all you know about it is that they wear uh, uh, black turtlenecks and smoke clove cigarettes. (laughs) That's pretty depressing. Because what it says is you're not born a hero. You know, heroes aren't heroes because they were born that way. Heroes are heroes because they did a heroic thing or a series of heroic things. But the flip side of that is you're not born a coward. And that means that if you do a cowardly thing, you got no one to blame for it but yourself. Heroism is always an option for you. I find that very liberating. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, terrifying. Right? Because if if I can't blame anybody for what I've become, well, you know, that means i got to look at myself in the mirror and live with what I see looking back at me. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems like a Christian idea to me. At the age of 50, you always have the face you deserve. Right. And, you know, 50 yeah. gets closer and closer. <laughs> For me especially. <laughs> well, I mean, look, being able to look in the mirror and say to yourself, yeah, you did that. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, and, and we all have these moments, right, because, because human beings are, are storytelling creatures, right? We, we, we make sense of the world through narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and and we have these ready-made narratives wherein I am the hero of the world. Like, well, in your narrative, you're the hero, not me. But the the person telling the story sees him or herself as this hero. And you kind of – there are days when you wake up and look back at your life and think, oh, my gosh, I'm the villain. You know, mm-hmm. I, I am I, – I, I have done things that I cannot give an account for, things that, that – that, are awful things that I never thought I was capable of doing. And those I think are the most important moments of your life. When, when you recognize how rotten you really are. And here, here, obviously you see existentialism sliding into Presbyterianism. It's people, Mm -hmm. people wonder how you can be an existentialist Presbyterian because existentialists are all about freedom and Presbyterians are all about uh, predestination. Well, the answer is I don't think too much about predestination. The answer is I think a lot more about total depravity, and then it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Total depravity, not me, not meaning that I'm bound to do these things, but that I'm probably going to do it anyway, because I'm I'm not the hero I imagine myself to be. Yeah, that's a fantastic segue. I thought it might be. 
Yeah, well, we were leaning into the next question that whole time. <laughs> well, all right. So we're going to switch to you, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, were uh, dubbed a uh, semi-Pelagian, um, which, if I recall, <laughs> you were you were less fine with. Correct. We all got a good laugh out of it, though. <clears throat> so, briefly, what's a Pelagian? Why aren't you one? <laughs> and how does not being a Pelagian, semi or otherwise shape your version of Christian humanism? Well, first of all, Pelagius the man, uh, his lifetime spans the 4th and 5th centuries of the Christian era. Did I say 4th and 5th? Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good, good. I, I, didn't remember, I couldn't remember if I said 3rd and 4th or 4th and 5th. But most of his uh, work that he's recognized for happens during the 5th century. Uh, what's interesting is that not unlike St. Augustine, uh, he considered himself an anti-Manichaean. In other words, he's very concerned that uh, we not narrate reality in terms of human beings being the pawns of larger-than-life good and evil forces in the universe, uh, and therefore removing the responsibility from human existence. Uh, so Pelagius, in pursuing that, uh, also noted uh, the famous question of the virtuous pagan, uh, which, of course, I've written about here and there, uh, namely that there are certain people like Socrates uh, or like uh, Cyrus the Great, if you look at the, you know, um, the oracles of sort of the midsection of the uh, book of Isaiah, uh, there are these people who would not acknowledge verbally the supremacy of the God of the Bible uh, and yet seem to be doing good things, all right? So with those ingredients sort of getting mixed into this uh, stew of philosophy and theology, uh, Pelagius comes to say that ultimately the doctrine of original sin, as it comes to be called, uh, can't be one that he can subscribe to, largely because it seems that all sorts of people are capable of, well, I mean, to go back to Michael's description earlier, uh, any given person in any given moment could become a hero or a coward. Any given person in any given moment could show mercy or could be merciless. Any given person in any given moment uh, could do something that we can recognize as virtue or could fall into something we could rec recognize as vice. And so for that reason, he tends to emphasize the freedom of the will to such a great extent that the fathers of the church, rightly, I think, pointed to that too exclusive focus on the freedom of the will as denying certain realities of the Christian faith. Now, I'm going to stop right there and say, I don't think of myself as a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian Chenboule, uh, but I also ultimately don't go the same direction as a lot of theologians do with this question. What I tend to do, uh, and I would regard this as a non-Pelagian, non-Calvinist uh, philosophical approach, and, you know, listeners, you can write in and tell me I'm full of beans. You won't be the first, and I hope you won't be the last. Uh, but I tend to think of the question of, you know, can human beings do good things? Uh, when I answer that, I say, first of all, it's always grace that allows us to do good things. I mean, our very existence is a gift. Uh, the shape of our existence is such that we do have free will. Like I've said on a number of occasions, Michael's almost got me convinced to be a Christian existentialist myself. Uh, but here's where I would differ from Pelagius. I think that his 
most significant philosophical error, uh, not his only one, but his most significant one, is not that he puts too much emphasis on the freedom of the will, but he overestimates the intelligibility of goodness absent Christian revelation. Mm. So in other words, what I would say is uh, that, yes, indeed, Cyrus the Great does do some, do some things to advance the course of divine providence, and yes, indeed, uh, Socrates in his quest for truth is an exemplar of self-sacrifice, and yes, indeed, uh, you know, I would point to Muslims with whom I grew grew up with in Indiana uh, as people I would look to far more readily than I would look to some Christians and certainly far more readily than I would have other people to look to me as examples of patience and joy and other virtues that St. Paul names in his letters. But I would say that absent the revelation of Christ on the cross, absent the revelation of God's nature as Father and Son and Spirit, absent the revelation of that narrative of the death and the resurrection as ultimately the shape of divine power, we human beings are incapable of recognizing and therefore of desiring what is genuinely divine and good. And therefore, if we do good things, I agree with Pelagius that pagans do good things all the time. Uh, And by the way, pagans, I I use there with tongue slightly in cheek because I realize that's a politically loaded term. But uh, when people who don't realize they are doing what is good within the narrative of a Christian revelation, do so, and we can point to it, and we can emulate it, but we shouldn't pretend it's because they knew they were being Christians, all right? So, I mean, in that respect, like I said, I really don't regard myself as a Pelagian, but I would say the primary difference is an epistemological and an ethical difference rather than a difference in, you know, how great this entity called free will is. Uh, so, David, am I still a Pelagian? <laughs> um, do you want to toss? Um, do you want to toss uh, Edward's divine and supernatural light into this conversation? Oh, won't you go ahead? Since you're thinking about it. Well, I, I just I, I remember it because um, it's one that you've referred to in the past as. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as as part of your your account of these things as well, mm-hmm. that uh, that that when we talk about um, as you say the revelation of the good that comes through through special revelation, especially through the through the narrative of special revelation, um, you know of God as as creator and deliverer and redeemer, and especially seen um, uh, in Christ on the cross. That that's not just a revelation of information, mm-hmm. but also um, also a work of illumination uh, on the inside as well. It's not it's not just grace on the outside, sure, but also a grace on the inside. Um, and uh, I, I think that both of the that that the, the the grace that is necessary to, to the affirmation of grace that we need to keep us from being Pelagians is not just uh, the affirmation of an external uh, work, an external gracious work, but also an internal gracious work. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, I I would say that, you know, that internal change and I, and I agree. I mean, you know, divine and supernatural light is my favorite Jonathan Edwards sermon. uh, And I think that what he says in there is true, but I think that that internal change is a part of a cosmic change 
that mm-hmm. encompasses intellectual and political and ethical and spiritual and psychological realms all as a whole. Uh, okay. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, where an anti-Pelagian would be very concerned with, you know, he's not focusing enough on the internal. Mm-hmm. I tend to say there are other folks who say, who get so focused on the internal that they don't realize that what counts as goodness in the political realm changes mm-hmm. when God dies executed in an unjust trial by the empire. The mm-hmm. whole definition of goodness changes, and that's mm-hmm. important. Cool. I dig. So what does that have to do with the way we do what we do? Oh, what's, oh good question, good question. For this reason, I think, uh, and you know, I talked a little bit about this on that uh, episode, that the metaphor that Chen Boulay brought to us, which as far as I can tell comes from Cornelius Van Til, uh, I've said before on this program that Cornelius Van Til is sort of my intellectual Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie. I just, I, I cannot get in a groove with that guy. I seem always to be at loggerheads with him. Uh, is that the strong metaphor in his work is points of origin. So in other words, your point of origin is either Christ or it is not Christ. And if your point of origin is bad, then everything you do is going to be bad. All right. Um, the, the metaphor that I prefer, and again, it's not really a, a disagreement within the same paradigm, but it is a different paradigm entirely, I would say, uh, is that what's important is not necessarily your point of origin, because all of our points of origins are complex things, but rather what happens when horizons get near enough to each other that they open up new horizons. Uh, so in other words, you know, I think that the Christianity that arises in a sort of uh, post-John Tetzel environment, uh, in other words, the historical and intellectual conditions that make Martin Luther's work and John Calvin's work possible, is a different sort of critter from the Christianity that is arising, you know, when St. Paul is writing his epistles. And that, in turn, is different from the Christianity that arises when you know, you've got people releasing podcasts on the internet, and one of them's called Christ the Center, and one of them's called Homebrewed Christianity, and one of them's called the Christian Humanist Podcast. And, you know, I don't think that those are unrelated things. I wouldn't call them conversions, to go back to that earlier conversation. But I would say that we do ourselves a disservice if we minimize those things and we apply labels like Pelagian too readily to realities where they don't fit as well. I think this also goes back to something we talked about in the On Idolatry Tertullian episode, mm-hmm. which is that all theology, is because we're limited and because we're fallen, is in some sense idolatry, which means I don't understand how there can be this this clean thing called starting from Christ. Mm-hmm. Who's Christ? Mm-hmm. What? What? Who, whose face is he wearing? Does he look like Cornelius Van Til when Cornelius Van Til... Uh, starts from Christ, and if so, guess who he's actually starting from? I don't know. I haven't read Van Til. Right. Now, like I said, I I recently listened to a series of uh, recorded class sessions from Westminster Seminary with Cornelius Van Til, and listening to his voice, I can't think of him as Darth Vader anymore. Uh, You know, he's more like that sort of Minnesota farmer down the road uh, that you disagree with, but he's just so much fun to listen to. Don't you know? 
<laughs> and actually, his catchphrase when he leads class, I mean, it's hilarious, is, you know, he'll make a point and he'll get rolling and say, don't you see? Don't you see? <laughs> the weirdest thing for me is that he keeps uh, bad-mouthing you in those lectures. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. <laughs> Well, he might be your Darth Vader, but I, I, I don't think you were his Luke Skywalker. No, not by any means. Not by any means. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm more of a, you know, Porkins. I, <laughs> I, I pretty much crash into the Death Star before anyone fires a shot. <laughs> oh, it, kind of an also ran. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, more of a, why did they give that guy an X-Wing fighter? <laughs> I, I'm one of those fish monsters. That's <laughs> a trap. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'll just be an Ewok being happy on the moon. You, you are the, the most Ewokian of the three of us, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I want to know if our if our listeners all want to give Grubs a hug. <laughs> Do I seem like I need a hug? A little bit. You've got you got kind of a glum voice sometimes. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> But it's because I'm a bass, and we record early in the morning. I'm I'm not really that much, that glum of a person. So. <laughs> Anywho, we need to be rounding out towards the end. Uh, before we do, um, I want to do just a little bit more intellectual biography. Um, hopefully, in a way that's fun. Um, so here's our thought experiment. Imagine you are on a road trip. And you can invite three thinkers who have influenced you. They can be dead. This will work out. Um, who would you invite and why? Michael? I, I would have to do Frederick Buechner, I think, because he was so important for my intellectual development. Um, and he's still alive, although he must be 90. Mm -hmm. um, I would invite Walker Percy, who is as close as I've ever found to a intellectual common traveler. I, I find myself, I'm, I, it makes me wonder if I should be Catholic, but I agree with him so much and he was Catholic, but, <laughs> but I, I have never found anybody on whom I agree about so many things. Um, everything from epistemology to linguistics to why bourbon tastes good. And if you've never <laughs> read Percy's essay on bourbon, it's online and worth reading. Excellent. The third one is a little harder for me. Um, I, 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 there, there's lots of people I could say, right? I, I, I would be interested in talking to Heidegger. I think I'm not sure I would want to drive to Florida with him. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like the sort of person who would demand that the air conditioner be off. <laughs> Get very hot. Nice. Um, Dostoevsky is another one I'm tempted to say, but again, do you really want to be in the car with him for 12 hours? He'd yell at a bunch of motorists. <laughs> nice. I guess the answer is Kierkegaard, um, who I find to be almost lim limitlessly interesting. Uh, as long as I could guarantee it was him showing up and not one of his pseudonyms. 
<laughs> and and here seems as good a place as any to add that if you if you if you're not a subscriber to profiles yesterday by the time this comes out mm-hmm. uh my interview with Merrill Westfall went up on the profiles feed so if you're interested in Kierkegaard do download that and listen to me embarrass myself in the face of Merrill Westfall but I guess those would be the three but that that third that third slot I I I would have trouble filling there's too many people I would be interested in and you know they say that you never want to meet your idols Mm-hmm. Well, that's true, but that's why it's a thought experiment. Right. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. I, under- I understand that you're not actually offering to resurrect anybody I would like from history. <laughs> no, no, I, I can't follow through on that. Nathan? Well, my first one uh, is actually Martin Luther, uh, and I realize that he is the villain of my dissertation, and that's precisely why I'd like to have a long conversation with him, that and also because he can tell a dirty joke as well as anyone <laughs> Um, that would be a fun drive. We got to get him and the Pope in there, Pope Francis. I, I find him <laughs> so fascinating intellectually, even as he goes directions that I just cannot go in terms of the Christian faith. And I mean, for that reason, I think that uh, the conversation that I could have with Martin Luther would uh, really just be something that would I, I would treasure. Uh, and I mean, that's why I keep reading Martin Luther. Uh, even though, like I said, you know, he sort of features as the mustache twirling villain of my doctoral dissertation. Uh, number two, I would say Elizabeth Johnson, who is still alive. She's a feminist theologian. Uh, and her style in writing is so patient and so deliberate uh, that I have a hunch that even though I'm not as much of a feminist theologian as she would prefer that I be, that she would have the patience and the character to lead me through the thought process that got her where she is uh, in a way that, you know, I wouldn't be as inclined to fight her on. Now, putting, you know, Luther and Johnson in the car together might be a bad idea, but it's a thought (laughs) experiment, so we're we're running with it. He likes Um, women, right? Yes. Yes, he did. (laughs) That that seems a very broad predicate, but... uh, um, and really the third that I would put in there, uh, and again, I'm, I might be surprising the snot out of our listeners with at least two of these three would be C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, on our C.S. Lewis episode, the more that I reflect on what he was doing in the 20th century and what I'm trying to do in the 21st century, uh, obviously he's far more a public figure, a far more prolific writer, uh, far more agile in his prose than I will ever be. Uh, but I really do think that he and I share this central conviction uh, that there are a whole lot of good books that people are forgetting, and that's a dang pity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, I mean, you know, just to pick his brain, um, you know, maybe he would, you know, lambast me because, you know, I just don't understand why patriotism is such a virtue. Uh, but. I still think that would be a phenomenal conversation. So you'd have to get your car fumigated after that trip, though. <laughs> well, yeah, between uh, Luther and Lewis, yeah, I'd have to apologize to Elizabeth Johnson, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't Luther be fun at a truck stop? <laughs> <laughs> Luther's life is a truck stop, man. Yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. David, what have you got? Um, I would also um, I would also invite Lewis along. Uh, uh, for for the set, um, not necessarily the same kinds of reasons. He's more of a um, more of a hero of mine. Um, but 
just I, it, everything I read about him uh, leads me to think that he would just be a really interesting guy to have sitting over there and just listen to him talk. Um, he's he, he's he was a natural storyteller. He, he every, every all all that I read of him has just such an engaging voice that you know I, I would love to have that voice in the car with me. Um, I would uh, I would invite Chesterton along for the same reasons. And uh, again, you know, not because I would agree with everything that he said, but I would enjoy listening to him say it. Um, and it might actually be kind of fun to get in a fight with Chesterton. Um, <laughs> I'm not uh, sure you're going to have room in the car for a third person, though, David. <laughs> I'm going to take a big car. <laughs> um but my third person would be uh Dorothy Sayers. Um uh I, I have a lot of of admiration for Sayers as a um as a writer of fiction, um uh, as a as a translator and commentator on Dante, uh but also as uh as someone who was doing uh, I, I think good work uh, in her day in connecting um, connecting the idea of learning and scholarship um, with uh, with theology. Uh, her book, The Mind of the Maker, is um, well, you know, it, 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 it's it's an attempt to connect the art of storytelling with Trinitarian theology and. You know, buy the popcorn and just let her talk, and I'm and I'm good. You know, um, so I, I I don't know how much I would be talking on this road trip. I think mostly I would be listening, mm-hmm. or maybe listening to them fight. That might be fun too. Right. Well, and I mean, and and there illustrates you know one of the differences between me and Grubs because I would bring these people along precisely to fight with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I think I think our notions of a good road trip might also <laughs> disagree, uh, uh, differ slightly. Well, let's uh, circle through to the end. It is the end, my friends, um, with some book suggestions. Um, so what should our readers, or not readers, what should our listeners read to inform their journeys as Christian humanists? Just a couple recommendations quick and we'll move on. Nathan? Well, the one volume that I would suggest is uh, Erica Rummel's uh, The Erasmus Reader. And for a couple mm. of the texts that are in there, one of them is The Praise of Folly, which is uh, just a lovely meditation on, uh, well, I mean, frankly, I mean the silliness of this whole enterprise uh, and why its silliness might just be the best reason to continue with it. Uh, the other text that's in that volume is his, um, his philosophical dialogue called The Ciceronian, uh, and the Ciceronians, I mean, it's hard even to think that these people existed because Erasmus is so skillful in skewering them. Uh, but these are people who became so dedicated to Cicero as an intellectual uh, that they went so far as never to use a non-Ciceronian common noun in their public oratories. Um, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, Cicero just takes them to – not Cicero – uh, Cicero was dead for some time by then. Erasmus <laughs> uh, just takes them to town. I mean, it's hilarious to read. 
and really, I mean, in my mind, it is a parable for both the glories and the perils of having a favorite writer as a Christian intellectual. So that's what I would mm. recommend. The Erasmus Reader, go buy it now on Amazon. Michael, what do you got? I'm going to uh, suggest Beekner's The Alphabet of Grace, which was my first favorite adult book. I mean, adult in the sense of a book for adults, not in the sense yeah. of X-rated. Speaking of truck stops. <laughs> it's only about 100 pages long. You can read it very quickly. Uh, but it, it it is almost impossible to say what it's about, just kind of the quiet mysteries in everyday life. I, I think that's just a wonderful book. I'm also going to suggest a book of literary criticism. It, it probably won't be interested to, interesting to those of you who haven't read the authors it's about, but it's called The Comedy of Redemption. It's by a guy, Ralph C. Wood, who is as close a, uh, a thing as I have to like a living literary critic hero. He's a Christian scholar. I think he's at either Baylor. Yeah, he's at Baylor now. He was at Duke for a long time, but now he's at Baylor. And he, mm-hmm. um, he, he talks about uh, humor in the works of Updike. Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and this guy I have not read called Peter DeVries. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I read that book uh, when I was writing my dissertation, and I thought, this is what I want to do. This is the sort of writing I would like to to do. So hopefully one day I'll be able to get him on profiles the way Nathan has systematically gone through his heroes. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I have two recommendations as well. Um, the first... I believe we alluded to um, a long time ago. Uh, I can't remember the episode, but uh, Cardinal Newman's "The Idea of the University." Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a speech that he gave uh, at the at his, um, I guess, installment as at the president of as the president of a uh, an Irish uh, Catholic university, which. Uh, it's 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 a bit old fashioned. I mean, keep in mind that you know we're talking about, um, you know, uh, very late Victorian Edwardian notions of of culture and so forth. But uh, a very interesting um, uh, sort of s- uh, syllabus for uh, the intellectual life in which an intellectual and scholarly life in which theology really is the queen of the disciplines. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot and it's, it's, I, to me, it's a, it's a good, it's a good one to read and then, you know, take it as far as you can go. But, um, I, I think it's a good conversation partner when you're sorting out this whole project in your head. Uh, another one, uh, I already mentioned Dorothy Sayers' Mind of the Maker. Um, it's largely an attempt to conceive of the human arts, uh, human arts, especially literature, especially the storytelling arts, but uh, the arts in general, uh, framing them in terms of uh, the image of God and humanity and what it means to uh, create as creatures who are made in the image and likeness of a creator. And that's uh, that's Tolkien's quote, but, you know, Sayers is Sayers is doing that. Um and doing it in very, uh, very explicitly um, creedal uh, ways, which, uh, again, I've, I find very, very interesting. Um, and and 
has helped has helped me um, in thinking, uh, especially about how I, as a Christian, find value in uh, in art of of all different kinds. Um, a lot of times, uh, especially evangelical Christianity, is not quite sure that it can celebrate art that doesn't have a cross in it somewhere. Um, but uh, I think Dorothy Sayers' Mind of the Maker uh, can can chart out some theological ways of valuing art that isn't explicitly Christian, but still valuing it Christianly. Mm-hmm. And that's that, I think, is a, a very Christian humanist thing to do. So that was our episode. I hope uh, I, I hope you believe that the C is in the CHP listeners. <laughs> um, we believe so, and we've we've uh, we've made our case for it. Um, right. Next week, well, next week is Michael. What have we got going on, Michael? We will be talking about the suburbs. Oh, fun! Well, suburbs. Will, will it include minivans and uh, soccer? It, it can. I haven't right. written the questions yet. All right. Awesome. <laughs> well, that's that. That's what we'll look forward to. Next week, uh, we will go to the burbs, dear listeners. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, uh, wishing you the best and grandest of weeks. And I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther. To let your sin be strong, to let your faith be strong. <laughs>